When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to This is the Place, a podcast from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Tom Slay about his poems, Last Cigarette, and Apology to My Daughter, both of which appear in issue 22 of The Common. Tom Slay's many books include The King's Touch, House of Fact, House of Ruin, Station Z, and Army Cats. His book of essays, The Land Between Two Rivers, recounts his time as a journalist covering refugee issues in the Middle East and Africa. He has won a Kingsley Tufts Poetry Award, a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Lila Wallace Award, both the John Updike and Individual Writer Awards from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, and two NEA grants. His poems appear in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Three Penny Review, Poetry, and many other magazines. He's a distinguished professor at Hunter College. Tom Slay, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Emily. Uh, nice to be here. Um, I love doing anything for the common that I can, so that's great. Okay. Would you set the scene for our conversation? Just describe where you're living and calling from now. Yeah, I'm um, calling from my apartment in Brooklyn, New York, um, part of Brooklyn called um, Borum Hill, which is kind of a real estate fantasy. It's, it's <laughs> near downtown is what it is. And I've lived here for close on to 30 years. I live right across the street from um, one of the largest New York City housing complexes uh, in New York. And the buildings are set back from the road a bit. Uh, so there's a lot of light and air. And um, I've always lived on the top floor. It's a fourth floor walk up. Um, and one of those old brick buildings uh, built in the uh, 20s sometimes. So uh, we're the only freestanding building uh, for blocks and blocks and blocks. Don't ask me how that happened. But it is sort of, a, you know, it's a rarity in New York to have, you know, light on all all sides. I'd love to start off with a reading. Would you read both of these poems for us? Sure. Uh, why don't I start with Last Cigarette, and then I'll read Apology to My Daughter. Um, they actually occur on facing pages in the book of poems, so uh, that's simple. Last Cigarette. After the explosions, the big one of the Big Bang, the little one of the firecrackers set by some kid, often weeds in the field, not a sound in outer space or here back on earth disturbs the perfect peace of the unmoving afternoon. The body of the soldier I saw lying asleep in his hut of scrap metal on top of a hill. Or the stop-time photo of the meteor slamming into the atmosphere. Float in the clear air, forever part of a moment that in a moment will disappear. Today is a long day in which death keeps coming closer, but still elsewhere, off in the electronic ether. Though the soldier 
could be dead, his last image of himself exploding through the air, through the minefield he walked in among the orange trees, unaware of the grenade that caught him smoking in the shade. Flicking with his thumb, his lighter's flint striker, not worrying at that moment about living forever, the field he's walking in through this stillness without end is an island drifting through the void. Apology to my daughter, and it's got an epigraph uh, by Boris Pasternak, and it goes, Life is not a walk across a field. For ten years, Hannah, the world convinced me that thorn trees, desert, land rovers tricked out with CB radios, machine guns and armor plate grew more real the harder it became to fulfill my nightly promise to rebar and rubble that some final vowel would reverse time and resurrect stunted concrete into a city stretched to the horizon, a smoking vacant lot, overgrown weeds and vines, a real nightingale flitting among leaves. I didn't know it back then, but when I left you, Hannah, I suspected private life underneath was pure evasion, but I learned there's no shortage of suffering, that a father's no shield for his child when life is, in fact, a walk across a field. Thank you for reading those. I love hearing poets read their work. (laughs) (laughs) Since I'm typically talking to prose writers, I usually pause here and ask them to describe what their piece is about for listeners who haven't had a chance to read it. Um, But I I know as writers, summarizing our work can be sort of painful. (laughs) You know, we agonize over the words so much. But I wonder if you could tell us what you feel these poems are quote-unquote, about or, or what you hope readers will, will notice or take away? Sure. Um, well, uh, both of these poems kind of come out of um, sort of a distillation of many years of having done uh, journalism uh, overseas, um, almost uh, mainly about refugee issues. And in the uh, first one, Last Cigarette, uh, one of the things I think that happens in the poem is that there are all these uh, large shifts in scale. You know, you're going from the Big Bang to a kid with a firecracker. Uh, and the um, then you're suddenly going out into outer space, and then you're back to a particular uh, moment on a very quiet afternoon. And in the poem, uh, the kind of perspective of a soldier, and because you know, I write about refugee issues, which means that inevitably uh, you're either in a place where there is a war, has been a war, or will be a war. And because of that, uh, you're almost, I, I spend a good deal of time uh, among soldiers. And so I've seen them in all kinds of conditions. Um, 
And, you know, the military in each country is really radically different. I mean, the, the, uh, our idea of what a military is is quite different than, say, the Kenyan military or, you know, what in Libya would, we would call a militia or, um, you know, Mogadishu uh, with, uh, you know, African Union soldiers. So the, the poem sort of, you know, distills particular uh, experiences I've had with soldiers. And one of the things that has always fascinated me about soldiers um, is the, how they cope uh, with the stress uh, day after day of dying, the threat of dying. And the thing I've always um, noticed is that, and it's in a certain way, it's not very much different. Um, I don't know if you're a smoker, Emily, or you ever did smoke. I am not. <laughs> okay. But anyway, you know, one thing that you always see in front of a, of a building, you see the smokers clustered together in there you know, doing their nicotine thing. And lots and lots and lots and lots of soldiers, particularly overseas, smoke. And when they're in stressful situations, I can suddenly see them go inside themselves, light a cigarette, and they kind of, in a way, have to escape uh, for just that moment, uh, the fear of death. And I think that's one of the things that's happening in this poem is that, you know, the soldier is walking through this orange field, uh, I mean, orange grove, and um, he doesn't realize that it's a minefield. Um, and what happens is that he, you know, lights up a cigarette, and so, and it's got all the minute attention of, you know, what people call traumatic uh, memory, but what I think of more is just a kind of um, heightened intensity because of the circumstances that you're in. And he focuses on the flint striker, and he's not worried for just that moment as he's sucking the smoke into his lungs. There's a moment of kind of release, enjoyment, pleasure. And then in the next moment, he's stepped on a mine, and he's become his own ghost. And then suddenly you zoom out, and there... He is uh, a kind of ghost orbiting um, in a void along with the earth, which is like an island in the middle of a void. And so all of those things kind of came together in the poem and uh, made this um, sort of strange, uh, peaceful moment, um, but encircled by you know, terrible threat by death, by large-scale violence, and by um, just a particular moment of violence. Mm -hmm. Right. I wonder if you could tell us a, a little more about how the, these poems came together, whether that's, you know, when you first wrote them, or I'm always sort of fascinated by how poets revise, <laughs> like what that process really looks like. Yeah. Well, you know, for me, I don't really have a method. I wish I did. Um <laughs> I, I basically, you know, I don't really know what I do. I basically fly by the seat of my pants. Uh, what happens is that, you know, uh, like when, when I was writing Last Cigarette or Apology to My Daughter, um, 
you know, in, in apology to my daughter, I think one of the things that the poem is, is talking about is just my deep desire uh, to have poetry, to have art kind of redress um, or create an imaginative counter-reality to the suffering that's caused by war. And, and in that poem, I think I kind of decided that I, maybe that was a little naive, you know, that, that in fact, you know, going off and potentially risking my life wasn't so smart. And, you know, and also, you know, certainly not smart as a father. Um, and so it, it's funny because I think both of these, these poems is a kind of hinge. And in terms of revising them, um, I often find that one poem is a sort of argument with another poem, even though at the time I'm writing it, I don't really realize that. But I think that the argument that I'm having um, in between these two poems, I mean, Last Cigarette seems to be very much a poem about a certain kind of duration, you know, um, and entering into a certain kind of duration, which you're suddenly free of um, any, any kind of human care except the pleasure of smoking. Whereas Apology to My Daughter is all about responsibility. It's all about understanding that this desire that I have, and I still deeply, deeply want art to be able to in some way address suffering, um, that at the same time, you know, when, when, the, um, when the speaker of the poem says that private life is pure evasion, you know, it's almost like um, that the way in which we all talk about private life as being deeply solacing is a kind of way of avoiding, you know, what isn't so solacing about it. But even worse than that, um, the um, just the threat and violence that surrounds it at every moment. And, you know, not to make, you know, easy comparisons, but, you know, watching what's going on in Ukraine now and seeing the kinds of uh, videos that people are trying to make, they're almost always trying to focus on one particular individual's experience as opposed to a mass, uh, you know, big statements. And it's the one particular individual's experience that seems to have the most resonance, at least for most folks. And so when I'm revising poems, they're almost always in a conversation with each other, even though I might not be aware as to what the conversation is. And, and, you know, I basically, you know, start with a phrase or uh, a vague idea of what I'm doing. And then I work with the language. You know, it's not about, you know, having big feelings. <laughs> I, I trust that the poem will, the feeling will emerge if the language is interesting. Um, and I remember a poet um, named Tom Gunn, a wonderful writer, wrote a beautiful book of poems many beautiful books of poems, but one in particular about the AIDS crisis. And Tom was telling me about having written a poem about a friend of his who died. And he said, well, you know, Tom, it was a very, it was a good place to put my grief. But then I showed the poem uh, to a friend of mine and the friend said, well, you know, it doesn't really seem very much like our friend Tom. <laughs> and Tom said, that was when I knew that just you know, that I had to go back and revise it. And Tom said, it's, it's not enough. Poems aren't enough. It's not enough just to 
use a poem as a place to put your grief or put your feelings. You have to do more than that. And, and that's the thing that I'm very, very conscious of when I'm revising, uh, that I wanted to do more than that. Uh, whatever that means, you know what I mean? And the, and the last thing I'll say is that it, in terms of knowing when a poem is done, I just have a brute faith uh, that I'll know. Um, but that too is uncertain. <laughs> and, and my friends help. I must say, I show my poems, uh, to my wife who is absolutely frank and said, nah, that's lousy. And, <laughs> and then I have another friend named Alan Shapiro and we've shown poems to each other. Our, you know, most of our writing lives or almost all our writing lives. I don't think I've written a single line or he's written a single line that he hasn't run his eye over. And, there's none of the, you know, it, it's always a standard thing, you know, oh, Tom, I like the poem a lot, but, and, and neither one of us feels the need or the necessity to, you know, do anything other than cut to the chase. Right. And, it's, and it's just wonderful. It's a fantastic mm -hmm. uh, friendship in that way. And um, I feel very lucky, you know, to have such intelligent, sensitive, honest readers. And it's, you know, I, I, I then, you know, then it's just in, then it's just, uh, and then after I say things like this, I say to myself, you have the faintest idea what you're doing, really. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I like that. Sometimes I feel like that's, there's some magic there. I agree. I mean, I, <laughs> I really do think that words in a way, um, and I think this gets back to, you know, what's going on and, um, the, the, you know, when the speaker says, an apology that he wants a final vowel that would resurrect stunted concrete into a city that, you know, I mean, a lot of people talk about, you know, the difference between the sign and the signifier. And I know what the distinction is, but I, I don't accept it. Um, because what I think of as a word is for me, words are uh, sacramental, they're incarnational. And if you write a poem which is in response to an experience, it's its own kind of reality. And that reality may address, redress suffering in a way, if, if only uh, in the, you know, the minutes that you're reading the poem, but it's not negligible. Um, and I, I'm not, I'm not a Catholic, I, you know, but there is something sacramental. There is something completely transformative about words and I think that words embody um, our experiences. They don't gesture at them. They don't comment on them. The kind of poems I want to write and the kind of poems I want to read are, are those that really embody an experience and set up its own kind of reality. Mm. It, it strikes me that both of these poems include lines about walking across a field We've got the soldier in last cigarette um, and, and the final line in apology to my daughter, the life is a walk across a field. I was just wondering, like, is that something that is part of writing about war? Like just that feeling of exposure and danger and something as simple as walking across a field or, or is there more to that reference? Well, I think you're very, very accurate. Um, you know, the strangest thing about doing this kind of journalism that I do is that everything is okay. Everything is okay until it's not okay, and then it's too late. Mm -hmm. And that's just a, a truth. 
that I've come to that I've learned. And, you know, sometimes you're in really sticky situations and you think, oh, Christ, how did I get here? You know, <laughs> what turn of events uh, ended me, landed me in this situation? And so uh, the thing about walking through a field, uh, you know, uh, the, the epigraph comes from a Pasternak poem. And of course, you know, Pasternak lived through Stalinist terror. And the Stalinist terror was really responsible for millions of deaths, including many of Pasternak's, you know, contemporary who were writers and artists and whatnot. But he says, you know, he says, life is not a walk across a field. And that is certainly true to, I think, you know, Pasternak's historical experience. That is that if there's a kind of pastoral sense of walking through a field uh, and, you know, you're sort of absorbed into nature, that you've got this uh, momentary reprieve. But, you know, sometimes life just is a walk across a field. And even if you're a father trying to protect your child, uh, there's no guarantee that as your child is walking across the field, uh, you know, sort of lost in nature or lost in reverie, that something terrible isn't going to happen. And I think the precariousness of um, the casual, what seems at first casual, is that's what that's the kind of pressure that surrounds the poem, I think. You know, in a very, in a very, you know, kind of direct and, you know, I hope unmediated way. Mm-hmm. When I was reading Last Cigarette, I almost felt like time had been suspended. It was it reminded me a little bit of Schrodinger's cat. The soldier feels sort of simultaneously alive. He's sleeping in his hut. He's flicking his lighter, and also simultaneously dead because he's blown up by a mine or a grenade. Can you talk more about creating that feeling in the re- in the reader, or, or why you wanted to? Uh, sure. I mean, you know, all of these poems sort of come out of these distilled experiences. So. The Orange Grove in the poem actually came out of um, being in Lebanon in uh, 2007, a year after the 2006 um, Israeli-Lebanese war. And I had never been in a, um, a war zone before, but when I, when I, when I got to Lebanon, uh, the worst internal civil violence broke out since, you know, since the 15-year civil war. And the strangeness of it, um, you know, lots of sectarian killing, uh, lots of car bombs going off. Um, all of that uh, suddenly began to become um, added to a certain kind of intensity, which I'd never experienced before. And so when I went down to the South, because that's where most of the fighting had taken place, and I was interested in writing about Palestinian refugees as well as, you know, writing about the war, um, I met an old farmer whose house had been blown up uh, by an Israeli Defense Force uh, missile. And he told me that he was not going to be able to harvest oranges this year because cluster bombs had gone off in his field. And what a cluster bomb is, is just the a bomb with a lot of small bombs inside it. And when it explodes, all the other little bombs are supposed to explode, but of course they don't. And they just ended up seeding his entire field so that it would be slightly suicidal 
to go into a field like that. And that's really the image that I had in mind of the soldier, you know, weirdly walking through this terribly dangerous field in which there are all these, you know, little bomblet duds, but if you step on them, you can blow your hand off or blow your foot off. And, and that's, you know, all of the poems in a way are distilling very, very particular um, experiences in a way, and, and often in ways I, I myself don't, don't quite understand. But, but this feeling of timelessness, of being completely suspended, um, again, I think it has to do with trying to find a refuge, a respite, um, a different kind of mentality uh, that will, you know, give you just a moment of relief. And I, I'll never forget, that I, there was a fellow uh, in the barracks and, you know, uh, there was a mortar barrage that went on every, you know, almost every day. It's, it's almost like as regular as tea time. Here's tea, here's a mortar barrage, <laughs> you know. And he would sit in his bunk and he would read. And the mortar barrage would come on and he wouldn't even look up. And I love that kind mm-hmm. of absorption, you know. Um, I think Bishop called writing poems what a perfectly use, a, a, you know, a self-forgetful, perfectly useless concentration. <laughs> and, and I think that's exactly the kind of state that the soldier's in when he's walking along with a cigarette. Mm. So these two poems appear in your your new poetry collection, The King's Touch, which just came out last month from Grey Wolf Press. I would love to hear more about it. I'm really curious about the title. I wonder what else you can tell us. Sure. Um, Well, The King's Touch, uh, just a little background. This isn't, I I don't mean this to be embarrassing disclosure, (laughs) but, you know, when I was 26 years old, I've written about this, so it's not a secret. Uh, You know, I got diagnosed with a, um, you know, potentially fatal blood disease, and i I was 26 and, you know, generally people died by the time they were 36. So, yeah. And now I'm pushing 70 (laughs) Uh, and I don't know how I got lucky, but I did. And no one really knows why I didn't die. And I nearly did die three times. But when, when that kind of experience happens to you, Emily, um, you know, it's like fate grabs you by the collar and shoves your head against you know, the glass and says, look, (laughs) look at that, Tom. And suddenly everything, a a very, you know, stark division between your former life and you as a young person, you know, just opens up. It's an abyss. And, and you feel as if, you know, you feel very isolated um, naturally. And you feel as if you're incredibly different than other people, even though no one would think so. Uh, because you have no sense, I, I have, I'm unable to conjure a sense of the future. I act as if a future is possible, but I don't believe it. And so I think what happened when I was writing the book is, you know, now I'm an old dog, uh, quite grizzled, as a matter of fact. <laughs> and one of the things that happened is, you know, I had to go in for an MRI or a potential brain tumor. And so I happened to be reading about 
uh, you know, the king's touch. And what the king's touch is, quite simply, is it's a it's a you know an ancient uh, tradition that the king, because he's been divinely anointed, can simply reach his hand out and you know put his hand on the sick and touch them and heal them in the same way that Jesus did. He's just channeling that divine power. And but the thing I loved about it was a particular king whom I was interested in was James I of uh, both Scotland and Ireland. And James was James would hold these you know large audiences in which he would have to um, heal the sick. And generally, what he had to put his hands on were these what was called scrofula, which became known as the king's evil. <laughs> and the king's evil were basically scrofula is basically open wounds called by caused by tuberculosis tuberculosis germs. So there are these awful ulcers on people's necks. And James was notoriously squeamish about having to reach out and touch all these open wounds and sores and ulcers. And yet he had to do it anyway. And so long story short is when COVID-19 came along. On the one hand, I had all this intensity that I've been experiencing in doing the foreign journalism, I'd had this other kind of intensity, much more interior, of, you know, living for years and years and years with a potentially fatal blood disease. And then suddenly COVID-19 comes along. And suddenly everybody, everybody, we're not exactly in the same boat because some people have vaccines and others don't. But it suddenly felt to me like, oh my God, I'm not so weird. Now, everybody is experiencing the fear that I have felt. And as opposed to being Mm -hmm. a weird feeling, it was actually a strange sense of communion. Mm -hmm. And, you know, private, not not anything that, you know, you you know, you, you don't make support groups out of it, obviously. But, <laughs> but but what happened was it just seemed to me that a lot of different strands of my life suddenly came together, that the 26-year-old got linked up to the pushing 70-year-old with a potential brain tumor with the, you know, guy who goes out and, you know, writes about refugees. Uh, sorry, the the guy who goes out and writes about refugee issues. Um, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you arranged poems within a collection. Like you said, the two poems that you read were sort of facing each other on a page. Like, how does that come to be? Um, a lot of trial and error. You know, when, when you get to be my age, I have a lot of poems uh, sitting around. Um, and every book announces itself differently, you know. Uh you know, sometimes you have a, a, a sense of what it is you want to do, and other times you're just you know, flying by the seat of your pants. But this book, it's strange. The way it came together in terms of the order was it was like the psychic um, pressure that COVID-19 uh, began to exert on everybody in the very beginning. And, and I live in New York, and mm-hmm. in my particular neighborhood, it was really quite terrible in fact, what was happening. And, you know, it's one thing to hear on news reports that 
their refrigerator trucks, you know, with body bags in them. And then it's another thing to walk by Brooklyn City Hospital and see the forklifts actually lifting the bodies into the truck. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that the external circumstance of that, um, the whole way in which um, the country had been, become so intensely polarized uh, because of, you know, the Trump years and how s- even, even, even a pandemic became a flashpoint for ideological disagreement that, that when I was putting the book together, I wanted to have, I, I it's basically in, in four sections and, you know, it moves from kind of refugees and the situation of refugees and their situation with soldiers and the desire to redress suffering into a, a kind of coherent into, into a kind of um, uh, taking of the, those kind of public issues and mapping them back on to the United States. And then in the third section, um, taking those concerns that have been brought up, just the personal concerns, um, you know, what is the proper relationship of, say, one's own life to private life and to, you know, kind of public catastrophe. And then, uh, you know, trying to understand that in very personal terms, you know, including, you know, my wife uh, coming down with COVID mm-hmm. and, you know, her, you know, being isolated and me being isolated and, you know, me hearing her cough and thinking she was laughing, but in fact, she's coughing. And just the, you know, the, the fear of that, the strangeness of it, the uh, estrangement of it. And then in the very end, um, you know, suddenly realizing that, well, you know, we survived, but now what is going to be asked of us? Now what? That's really interesting. As you, you mentioned before, you've worked as a journalist in war zones. Uh, you've worked in Syria, Lebanon, Somalia, Kenya, Iraq, and Libya. I'm curious how you ended up doing that work and what kind of pieces you were writing. Well, I mean, like everything in my life, is totally happenstance. Um, you know, in terms of making plans, I, I, I try to make plans, but I don't really, like I said earlier, I just don't have any real sense of the future. But basically, Emily, I got asked by um, a, a Syrian a poet and translator, a man named Munir Al-Kash, and uh, his wife, a Lebanese poet uh, named Amira Al-Sain, to go to um, Lebanon and write about Palestinian refugees. Uh, and this was back in 2007 when that little mini civil war broke out. Mm-hmm. And what happened is... I wanted to go to the South and I, you know, just hired a, a cab driver for the day who turned out to be um, a young engineering student uh, who was moonlighting with a taxi driver and he drove, he and his dad had a taxi and I loved it. He drove, <laughs> he drove up to the, to the, uh, you know, to the hotel and I got in and I looked in the rearview mirror and I saw him blazoned across the back of the taxi, you know, emblazoned uh, across the rear view uh, uh, re- the rear windscreen trust taxi. <laughs> <I> thought, 
perfect. I'm in the yes. right, I'm in the right car. <laughs> and then he asked me where I wanted to go. And I said, well, I want to go to the South to see, um, you know, what happened during the war. And so he said, okay, uh, you know, I'll take you to Kana. And Kana, as it turns out, was a place where he had been a kind of Red Cross volunteer. And in Kana, uh, there had been a, it, as soon as I use the word, uh, there will be repercussions. Okay. I just, okay. <laughs> you just need to know that as soon as you were in, in a situation like between Israel and Lebanon, mm -hmm. um, everything is contentious. Every fact mm -hmm. is subject to different interpretation. So uh, an entire extended family, about 28 people were killed by, um, an Israeli defense force, uh, missile. Mm -hmm. uh, made in the United States, I hasten to add. <laughs> and, the, um, and on the one hand, uh, the IDF said that, well, behind the house, uh, Hezbollah was uh, storing arms. And then later, another military, uh, Israeli military official said, well, actually, that's not true. But, but you can't get to the bottom of these things, right. much as you may try. And so anyway, he took me down there, and he, and he described what it was like going into the village and, um, you know, first off, you have to understand there's a kind of intimate um, connection between combatants. So mm -hmm. the Hezbollah soldiers would not let him into the village to help the people who had been maimed, wounded, killed, mm -hmm. until they got the all clear from the Israeli Air Force. <laughs> you know, people just don't understand <laughs> that there's this kind of intimate you know, connection, even though, you know, people direly hate each other. Right. And so they finally got the clearance after waiting for two hours and he went in and he began, you know, he said it was very dark. There was smoke everywhere. There was, you know, screaming. And the weirdest thing, there was lots of cell phones going off. And they realized that the cell phones were actually in the pockets of people who had died, but the cell phones were still operating. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you just don't think about those things. Right. And, and so what happened was he found a little girl um, and he saw that she'd been buried in rubble up to her neck. And so he started to, you know, un uncover her and he got her unburied to the armpits. And he decided he would try to lift her free. And he, and he lifted her free. And I'll never forget, Emily, what he said to me. He said, I lifted her free and she was not there. And I said, I don't know, what do you mean? He said, she, the, the bottom half of her was not there. Wow. You know, she'd been born, you know, blown in half. And then I, mm -hmm. and then I, he looked like he was about to tear up. I said, look, you know, and this is the first time I'd done any journalism at all. I felt like an idiot and a fraud. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I just looked, you don't have to talk about this man if you don't want to. And he said to me, interrupted me and he said, no, 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 I'll tell you my story, but you have got to promise to tell it mm. to the world. And I had never, ever felt such a sense of commission and mm. responsibility. And of course, you know, we, we can talk about what it means for an outsider to try to tell that story, which is a very, very gnarly subject. Mm. Um, but at that moment, um, 
I think my life really profoundly changed. The stakes suddenly got much higher about everything that I would write from then on. Right. And the fact of the matter is, Emily, is I discovered that, you know, I'm, I don't have any do-gooder impulses. That's just not my character. But what I really enjoyed, I, lo- I loved meeting these people who were so radically different than I am. You know, I've seen famine up close. Um, I know what that's like insofar as any observer can know what it's like, you know, people coming in off the desert, um, you know, from Mogadishu into northeastern Kenya, like hundreds of people a day in terrible shape. Mm. And, and the thing that was so astonishing about it was to realize that, you know, I met a camel seller in the refugee camp, a, you know, a guy who had lost everything practically. And, but here he had, he was in this kind of market and they were, and this is in the refugee camp now, mind you. It's not, it's not like a t- town or a city or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, although the refugee camp is a little city unto itself. And so okay. we're sitting there talking about, um, you know, I, I, you know he, I said, so how's business, essentially? <laughs> and he said, eh, business is kind of off. It's not so good. And I said, well, why? He said, well, you know, I, uh, last year goats were selling for this number of Kenyan shillings. This year goats are selling for a lot less. And I said, well, why is that? He said, well, we're in a drought. You can't get any fodder to feed the goats. So nobody wants to buy a goat if the goat is going to starve to death. <laughs> and it was like having a conversation in New York City. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was, and it was utterly normal that in this extreme situation, starving people, desperate people, they were still exactly who they were. They were kind, they were generous, and it sounds simple-minded, but, you know, so often, you know, people are depicted as as nothing but this unrelieved, you know, kind of picture of suffering, but it's not true, you know? They're funny, you know? They're, they're a pain in the ass, they're stingy. They can be generous. They're exactly who they are, at least until they slip into a coma. And then, and then all that human quirkiness, you know, all that strange particularity is lost. And that, for me, is what's tragic. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why I think I've persisted at this journalism for so many years, is because regardless of the writing... It's just meant so much to me as a human being to have this pers- these perspectives open to me. And so, you know, that's, you know, I, I've been writing these long-form essays now for a long time, and it takes me, you know, a long time to write them because I, I don't do policy speak. You know, I don't try to solve things or offer solutions or, you know, I, you know, I don't do the think tanky stuff. It's just not my thing. And, and it would be stupid for me to try because I'm an outsider. And the first thing I, I always try to do is just acknowledge what it is I don't know, which is a lot, you know? And rather than try to hide that, you know, turn myself into an instant expert, I, I try to build that into the piece, you know? That becomes part of it, that I don't quite know how to interpret this, that this is what it looks like, but I'm not really sure. And I think that that, rather than trying to neaten things up, you know, mm-hmm. to tie a little bow around it, some kind of, you know, grandstanding, moralizing, finger shaking from on top of the mount, 
just just try to be as faithful as I possibly can to the minute particulars of daily life, the small picture, not the big picture, and just, you know, present the texture of the experience as closely as I can to how I, to how I, uh, to how it came through me through my senses. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, you, since we're talking about your, your long form journalism, you, you published a book of essays about the refugee crisis. And I know with all your reporting, you've seen firsthand how, how difficult things can be for refugees. So I just wonder how you're feeling now seeing this brand new refugee crisis in Europe with Russia's invasion of Ukraine um, that just happened this week. I think it's sort of hard for, for those of us who've never seen up close to, to imagine that experience. Um, well, the first thing, it's been very strange, I must say. Um, the first thing you have to understand is the kind of refugees who I've, I've reported on um, are are people who have almost, in, in certain cases, certainly in the case of Somali, Somalis, they have no infrastructure, nothing. There aren't, there are no extensive hospital services. There aren't necessarily uh, developed water systems. There aren't, you know, any of these things. And, you know, the, the typical MO of, of an invading army is the first thing you do is you, and this is exactly what happened in Lebanon. Um, you know, you, you try to, the Israeli army tries to knock out the communications. They try to knock out uh, military installations. And they try to knock out, uh, you know, government um, functions. But that's just the ostensible MO. <laughs> The real MO is to terrorize the citizens, to terrorize, you know, uh, the soldiers and make them give in. And in my experience, um, you know, courage unto death is, is a very rare quality in anyone. And yes, people do, you know, they do give in eventually. And there's no shame in that. It's just, you know, that's, that's just what it is about. So on the one hand, it's quite familiar to me in terms of the kind of public statements that are being made. You know, very familiar. And on the other hand, it's just radically different. Because, and, I'm, and, and the thing I want to say before I say anything else is there's no sense in establishing, in my opinion, hierarchies of suffering right because the fact of the matter is is no matter if you have hospitals working water systems all of that as far as i am concerned what's happening in a refugee situation is that it is one person's particular pain mm. and the 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 fact is, though, is that, you know, from what I've seen um, in Somalia, you know, for years and years and years, I mean, you know, there have been many famines in Somalia, not just the one in 2011. And, and people try to respond, but, you know, they do, but they, they can't take everything in. And the fact is, is, is and this is not necessarily... I don't want to come off as sort of judgmental in a way that is, 
stupid or, you know, <laughs> kind of, you know, Tom and his high horse. But it is, it is a fact, whether or not you want to ascribe ideological or all kinds of other motives to it, it is a fact that the West just can't take in for years, never took in what was going on in Somalia, what was going on. I mean, we took in what was going on in Syria, but, you know, when I was in Jordan talking to Syrian refugees, you know, the Syrian refugees had a very different sense of it. And, and so just the tragedy of no infrastructure is a further, you know, kind of tragedy on top of the, um, the fact of war and, you know, over you know, well over half a million people fleeing from Ukraine right now. Before we wrap up, I'd love to have you read one more poem for us. I was thinking you might read A Dictator Walks in a Bar, which appeared online in the comments November poetry feature um, and also appears in your new collection. Oh, okay. All right. Um, well, just to say a word about it, uh, the poem takes place in... Um, you know, I mean, poems take place in my head, but you know, <laughs> I say that the poem takes place in Libby because, in fact, that's kind of the, the you know, that's the germ of the experience. And what happened was I was in Libya, um, oh, uh, after Gaddafi had been killed, and I was um, traveling with a with a militia. And I, and I know as soon as you say militia, everybody... Everybody in this country, anyway, has a certain kind of reaction. But if you look at what's happening in Ukraine right now, um, I, I remember there's one particular young man who gets interviewed and speaks very good English. He just says, well, you know, I've never had anything to do with the military or weapons, but I'm going to take up weapons now. And everybody in Ukraine of a certain age, regardless of who they are, is suddenly in the situation of having to take up weapons. And that was certainly the case that I observed in Libya, that the head of my militia, quote-unquote, in his previous life had been an electrical engineer, you know, just like my dad. Mm -hmm. and, and I discovered as we're driving around uh, that instead of talking about, you know, the kind of blood and guts things that you're supposed to talk about when you're in these situations, if you're thinking about them in hackneyed terms, is he's, we're basically talking about, again, the tragedy of no infrastructure. The fact that Libya doesn't have as much electrical capacity that, you know, load shedding occurs. I mean, you know, you're getting really megawatt you know, it's very nerdy conversation you're having <laughs> as opposed to like, you know, some super dramatic um, you know, you know, you know, you know, I don't know. I, I, I've looked into the, you know, eyes of death, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And, and so at a certain point, you know, uh, he did show me a, um, a video and it was a video essentially of Gaddafi's last moments. And, you know, Gaddafi was found in a culvert and he was torn out of the culvert, and I suddenly realized that this mild-mannered guy who reminded me very much of my father was, you know, a, very likely one of the people who uh, had captured Gaddafi. Anyway, they took Gaddafi out of the culvert, they threw him over 
the hood of a truck and they beat him to death. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm sitting there watching the video, trying to put it together, you know, with this guy talking about load shedding and <laughs> this really brutal thing. And here's, this is the important thing I think for me as a writer. And that is, you know, I have my political convictions. We all do. Minor knee jerk lefty. <laughs> you know, they're very boring. Anytime I try to write out of them, the language is incredibly stupid. Um, and on the other hand, what happened when I watched that video is I realized something, and that is that even though my political conviction said, well, Gaddafi's got to go, he's a bad guy, as I was watching a fellow creature being beaten to death, even though he's a monster, it was a lot more complicated emotionally. Right. And it's the difference between political convictions and political emotions and I'm interested in writing out of the gap between those two things, the political mm-hmm. emotions, which are contradictory. The, you know, uh, your political convictions run headlong into them and you can't exactly explain away because they're not complex enough political convictions to explain mm-hmm. what you're actually experiencing. I believe in them. I, I try to live them. But at the same time, they're limited. <laughs> and, and so basically when I, when I sat down to write this poem, all of these kinds of conflicts were there. And rather than, like I said, neaten it up, I just wanted to be as true as possible. It's, it's a little bit like trying to write in the space between what you think you ought to feel and what you really do feel. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's just, the you know, that's the back backdrop. The only thing that you need to know in the poem is that Gaddafi um, called himself Murshid, which was, you know, the guide. And if you want to know what a weird guy Gaddafi was, just go <laughs> online, uh, type in Gaddafi plus hats, H-A-T-S, hats. Mm-hmm. And you will see <laughs> Gaddafi in probably 30 or 40 different chapeaus looking utterly ridiculous. Mm. And so it's possible for, you know, a a dictator to be completely ludicrous and also to be a monster. And Gaddafi was a bit of both. And I don't think people, many people know this about Putin, but if you put in Putin plus hockey, you will suddenly see Putin in a hockey uniform playing hockey, scoring all the goals at an exhibition game at Sochi. (laughs) It is ludicrous (laughs) beyond belief. And rather than thinking that those two things are contradictory, I think they're totally continuous with who he is. Mm -hmm. Of course he's scoring all the goals. (laughs) (laughs) So, So anyway, I'll read the poem. Okay, okay. A dictator walks into a bar... In the hotel lobby, leaning against a marble column from when the Romans ruled, I sip my vodka as gunfire night and day, ricochets in celebration, punctuating someone's wedding or a moment in someone's mood in which blowing off a clip into the air 
fights off boredom. In the cell phone video, there's more slashes of light, jiggle and jag than a stable point of view. I watch them drag him from muck out of a culvert, his koofy knocked askew, heavy body thrown across a Toyota battle wagon where an electrical engineer turned militia man who reminds me of my father, mild, unshowy, studiously polite, doesn't smile, frown, as he watches himself slapping in the footage that he's showing me, the brother leader, great Murshid, the guide, doesn't comment, doesn't shy away from my oh-so-fine-tuned sensitivities quivering on the brink, maybe a little drunk, my cloak of objectivity already tattering into rags. His lumps, welts, not quite bleeding. Unable to look away, am I hoping to see blood? It isn't every day that a dictator rides under heel, the one powerful enough to say, those who do not love me do not deserve to live as if he himself were the soul and the body politic, and we were just an afterthought, accessory to his glory, the merest janitors to his trash, or maybe just the trash itself, all of us human trash, waiting to be burned. But now it's our turn, and we've got him where we want him. His livid puffy face, its blankness unto death, like slopped over paint running down the can. His nose by now smashed in, so his mouth hangs open to the blawness of desert hardpan and cliffs shadowing tank tracks back into the Nafusa Mountains where just an hour ago we were driving and he was worrying about load shedding and high voltage grids, the tragedy of no infrastructure. While I was daydreaming of vodka and peeling happy hour shrimp, glinting like armor plate, finally, I've seen enough. But as I turn to give him back his phone, He's moved down the bar and seems head-bowed to be peering into his drink with that intimate anticipation that could signal a joke or a prayer speeding to its punchline. Only it's the new kind of humor, the new kind of prayer in which the jokes aren't funny and prayers don't deliver. And whether you're praying or laughing, it's all on you. Thanks so much for reading that. Tom Slay, I'm so glad you were able to join us today. It's been really great talking with you. Thanks a lot, Emily. I appreciate it. And, um, you know, good luck with the common and your own writing. Thank you. Listeners, you can read Tom's poems and subscribe to the latest issue at thecommononline.org.